All right. So last week, we began the study of the book of, of Hebrews. And uh, excited about this study. Hebrews is a, a book unlike any other in the New Testament. It emphasizes the greatness of, of Christ as, as profoundly and uh, uh, systematically um, uh, uh, more than any book in the New Testament. Uh, in addition, this book contains really extensive background uh, research because it quotes from the Old Testament so many times, 42 times, and it, it comes only second to Matthew's Gospel and Paul's letter to the Romans. And the theme of this book could not be a better theme, the supremacy of Christ. The unknown author, he is writing to an unknown group of Jewish believers to an undisclosed location. Uh, we don't know much about them or the author, but we do know about their situation. We do know that they're suffering, that they're struggling uh, at the hands of their fellow uh, countrymen for leaving Judaism and, and embracing Christianity. And they've been ostracized from the synagogue, so kicked out of really society and rejected from their community. And so the price that has been paid to follow Christ has really been difficult for them to endure. And so many of them are, are, are discouraged. They're in danger of changing course and going back into, into Judaism. And so Hebrews is really written to, to magnify Christ so that they could really see that going backwards isn't to something better. That, that what they have found is, is the better. Christ is better. And they're beleaguered and they're tired, and so they need this encouragement. But in addition to their, the difficulty of their situation, they are also immature believers. They're just not mature enough to uh, know how to deal with the situation. And, and um, you know, they are on a journey, and all Christians are on a, on a journey. We all are on a journey. That journey is called sanctification. It is a process of becoming more and more like Christ. And with each passing year that goes by, and we've just come into a new year, um, if, we, if we haven't been sidetracked by sin, and if we haven't been distracted by maybe some worldly pursuit, we should find ourselves closer to Christ, because that's the journey. Sanctification is a process of making us more and more like him, and certainly closer to him. Another way maybe to put it is that Christ should look bigger to you each year. And C.S. Lewis portrays the, the Christian walk that way, and he does it so beautifully in uh, his Chronicles of Narnia. I know I've read some bits from him before, but he portrays the growing Christian's experience as an, as an ever-enlarging Christ, and he does it in his book, Prince Caspian. And just to kind of set that up, Aslan the lion is, is, is the lion of Narnia, and he represents Christ. And magically, these children kind of come to the land, and they do things for him and, and whatever. And so, so those, those children that have come back have been in this magical land for a while, but they haven't seen Aslan. It's been some time. And Lucy is really dying to see him. And so this is when she first encounters him. They already know him because it's a future journey. Uh, first encounters him in Prince Caspian. It says this, for, uh, Then, O oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion, shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow and underneath him. But for the moment of his, or sorry, but for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion. But Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. 
And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last. And the great beast, I love this, rolled over on his sides so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. And he bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her, and she gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Well, that is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Isn't that great? Such insight. And these are children's books. But this is the idea that growing Christians who progress down the road of sanctification, you will find an ever-growing Christ. R. Kent Hughes, the the famous author, Christian author, wrote it this way, expanding souls encounter an expanding Christ. I love that. And so that's that's why we're studying Hebrews. Those Hebrew Christians, those Jews, they needed to expand their, their souls. We need to expand our souls. We need to see a bigger Christ than maybe, maybe we have before. And today, let me tell you, we will. In, in this chapter here, it is incredible uh, what the author presents to us. But just to recap, to catch you up in case you missed last uh, week, just look at verse 1. Verse 1 says that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, to the fathers by the prophets. And I mentioned that last week that in in order for man to know God, God must speak. God spoke, it says uh, there. And yes, Romans tells us, Paul in writing in Romans tells us that we can know that there is a God and we can know a little bit about him by just simply the creation, but we can't know him through the creation. We can't have a personal relationship with him. To have that personal relationship with him uh, requires something else because you and I are confined in this box, this time and space area, this, this realm of the natural. But God exists in the supernatural. And there's no way for man, the natural, to go to the supernatural. For that even to begin to happen, God must speak. God must make something happen. And so we're told here that God spoke, and he did it through many, these two words, these various words, palumeros and palutropos, through many portions and manners. In short, what he's saying is through the Old Testament. Through those 39 books of the Old Testament, he spoke in many, many manners, in many ways. In many ways, he spoke to people. He, he, he talked to them in visions and in, and in dreams and in parables. And there are even symbols and types and all of those things exist in the Old Testament. And so when he spoke to men, those men wrote. And even the way they wrote is so various in many different ways. We have narrative and we have poetry and wisdom. We have songs, even love songs and law and, and all of these wonderful uh, things uh, come to us from God. So, ver- so varied. So God spoke in the Old Testament. But I mentioned last week that the message of the Old Testament, it was incomplete. It wasn't in error. It just was not complete. It's because it was in preparation for something else. All the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. And we talked about that. It's preparation for Christ. And that's what he says here, that in times past, that's what he did. He spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But then look at verse two. He has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So these last days, that word last, by the way, is eschatos. It's it's where we get that word eschatology. That word last in the Old Testament, in the Jewish mind, that last days would have, would have, in their minds, meant messianic fulfillment. 
Because as you read the Old Testament, it, it, they didn't understand that there would be a first and a second advent of Christ. They sort of saw it all kind of fulfilled at once, that Jesus would come, the Messiah would come, right? He would establish his kingdom. Israel would be freed from the oppression. They would sort of be established under his rule. And, and all those things would sort of happen at, at once. And that's certainly what Jesus came to do. But he came to do it in two advents, his first coming and his second coming. So the Old Testament, that age of of promise, because it's talking about the promises, it did end with the first coming of Jesus, which is why Jesus called these days the last days, because it's the the time of fulfillment. And, And with the presentation of Christ, God fully and completely expressed himself. He said all that he wanted to say. Everything that he wanted to say, he said through Christ and the New Testament. That's why Jesus in Revelation says, I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. It's everything that you need. So last week, that's what we saw. We saw the preparation for Christ and the presentation of Christ. But today, we're going to see the preeminence of Christ. That's the preeminence of Christ, meaning he's he's greater than anything, anything else that you could imagine. And so this isn't what... I have to say about Jesus. This isn't what uh, another commentator has to say about Jesus. This is what God has to say about Jesus. I don't care what, what someone else thinks about Jesus. If you want to say, you know, who is Jesus? You go here, Hebrews 1, because here we're going to learn what God says about Jesus. In this passage, we're going to see a sevenfold presentation of, of Christ. R. Kent Hughes, again, he he says it this way, that Christ in this passage is held up like a great jewel to the sunlight of God's revelation. And as the light courses through it, seven facets flash with gleaming brilliance. So that's what we're kind of looking at, the sort of facets of of Christ. Wonderful passage. We're just looking at the rest of verse 2 and verse 3 today, and we're going to find all that here. So let's look at it. Verse 2, he has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom... He is appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your wonderful word to us today. And Lord, we, we do want to see Christ bigger today. We want to see him magnified in our hearts and our minds. And Lord, this passage certainly does that. And I pray that your spirit would be with us, that the truth of who Christ is would be illuminated and magnified for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to look at these seven facets. And the author begins really at the most natural place to start because he's already stated that God has spoken through his Son, through his son. It's very important that we remember that Jesus is the son of God because that naturally makes him, number one, the inheritor. He is the inheritor of all things. We find that right off the bat here in verse two. This is the first uh, facet. Whom he is appointed heir of all things. He's the inheritor of everything, of all things. And remember, in the Bible here, in the Old Testament and and the New Testament, it was the sons who became the heirs. Mark even talked about that um, uh, a bit as well. They became the heirs of their father's estate. And so it's only natural then for the text to flow from sonship, Christ is the son, to the heir, right? Jesus, as God's son, is rightful heir of everything. And I want to show you 
that this is definitely in the mind of the author because he mentions his sonship over in verse 5. Just peek over to verse 5 real quick. He says this, For to which of the angels did he ever say, and now here's a quote from the Old Testament, You are my son, today I've begotten you. Now that quote is from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where the, the sonship of Christ is, is mentioned. But the very next verse in Psalm, Psalm 2.8, which I'll put up on the screen for you, goes into the inheritance part. Because he's a son, he is the inheritor. Look at it says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So the son, be made the son to God, is naturally then the one that can ask the father to, to be made the inheritor. Just ask me and you will get the ends of the earth for your possession. Now we know that Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic psalm. It is not ultimately about King David, but the ultimate son of David, because who can really have the ends of the earth for their possession? But Jesus. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise, which is part of the Davidic covenant mentioned here. That's the promise that he would never lack a man to sit on his throne, but that he would also inherit the earth. Now the psalm, Psalm 2-7 is mentioned there, but another psalm is mentioned. I just want to show you in the next verse. It's in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 1. It's right at the beginning. It says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Now, when he says the firstborn into the world, he again is referencing a psalm uh, of the Old Testament, Psalm 89, 27, because it highlights this idea of being firstborn. 89, 27 is this. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, you might remember, we, we looked at this during my Christmas message called God in a Manger. We looked at the word firstborn to establish what that actually meant. It did not mean that he was born first chronologically. This has to do with legal right. So you can see it in that verse. I will make him my firstborn, and he's the highest of the kings of the earth. The legal right to, of the earth belongs to Jesus and him alone. And by the way, aren't you glad, <laughs> right? As people fight over power and control in this world, it's, it all belongs to Jesus. Now, if you don't believe me, just make a short right-hand turn to Revelation chapter 5, and I'll prove it to you. Revelation chapter 5, just a few pages over. Let me set this up for you because here we're in the throne room of God in heaven. John, the apostle, is seeing this vision of the throne room of God. And just look at verse 1 of Revelation chapter 5. It says this, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, scrolls in Roman times, and particularly wills, had to be sealed seven times. They did that to prevent people from tampering with it. And so you would write out your will, you'd roll it, you'd put a wax seal, you'd roll it a little bit more, you put another wax seal, roll it a little bit more, until you had seven seals. So you got to break through a lot of these seals to get into that will to mess with it. And so it's very clearly that this is the title deed to the earth being held up high. Okay, now look at verse 2. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? I mean, who can really do that? If it's the will, the title deed to the earth, who has the power to do that? And verse 3, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at. So John sees this and says, oh, it's hopeless. No one can take that scroll. Ah, until verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of who? David, 
King David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Jesus is in the line of David. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He answers the question just by an action. Uh, who's, who's able to worthy to open this? Who can possibly do it? And Jesus strides forth and says, I'll take that. I'm able to open it. Now, as you read Revelation, th- this should have been clear as you've read Revelation. No doubt you've read it. That as Jesus is opening each and every seal, he is slowly taking back possession of what rightly belongs to him. So in chapter 6, the first seal is opened by Jesus, and it is slowly progressing more and more with each seal. As each seal is broken, Jesus is taking further, further possession. Now, until you get to number 7, the seventh seal, right? Finally, that seventh seal is open. What do you have? You have these trumpets. The seventh angel blows his trumpet, and then in Revelation eleven fifteen, look at what it says. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Why have they become his? He opened the seventh seal. It's all done. It belongs to him. Now, Jesus doesn't actually come and take possession of it until Revelation 19 when you read it. But the opening there, is, it tells us right there, that's it. Now it all belongs to him. He opened all seven seals. Now, think about that. Everything in this world belongs to Christ. And Mark pointed this out two weeks ago, saying that God as our father, we are his children. Christians then are joint heirs with Christ. What he inherits, we have a share in. Romans 8, 17, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. Do you remember when our study of 1 Corinthians, there's this church and they're fighting over just ridiculous things? Which leader is the best leader? I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Steve. And, and Paul's just saying, hold on a second. Everything is yours. You're Christians. Everything, why would you want to quibble over who follows who? And he said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. He said, therefore, let what, no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours. Why are you fighting? Why are you gathering into these little factions, he's saying, and these little cliques when everything is yours? The world is yours. Do you see that? He's trying to raise their perspective a bit. Now, Revelation, the book of Revelation promises to the overcomer, and remember, an overcomer is a believer, promises to that overcomer this in Revelation 21, 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Do you see that? So it is true we're all his children, but the reason we're all called his sons, male and female, because, ladies, you're an heir. You're an heir. And so you... I know it sounds weird, are also a son in in that sense, right? You get the share. You're a son, and you're going to inherit everything that Jesus inherits. Now, here's what is absolutely unfathomable when we look at all those things. Though Jesus is absolute heir of absolutely everything, uh, and he promises to share it with everyone, people still reject him. He has everything. 
Like, what, what, what would you go to? What are you after? I, Jesus has it all. Everything you could ever possibly want is in him. I know it can be difficult to follow Christ on this earth. We are promised that it would be difficult to follow Christ on this earth. But you know what? One of the things that's supposed to keep us going is the fact that everything is yours because everything is Christ's. So we should not get discouraged. Jesus, as the Son, is the inheritor of all things. That's his first point. That's just one of them. Let's look at the second one. As inheritor, also, he is the creator of all things. Go back to your passage, Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 2 again. Whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now, if you missed the Christmas sermon, I did cover some of this, so I will clarify some of these things, and some of this might be a little bit redundant, but I tried to add some things here. Now, we're told here in the New Testament that it's through Jesus everything was created, through whom all things were made. And maybe you're so used to Genesis and hearing in the beginning God created that you just can't imagine that Jesus had a hand in creating. Well, let me help you with all that. Jesus is the agent through whom everything was created by the Father. Now, notice we're told here that through whom also he made the worlds. Do you see that word worlds there? Now, usually in the New Testament, worlds is cosmos. It means this. It means this world. That's not the word here. The word here is I own. That word means ages. Ethan's nodding because I said it right. I say it right? <laughs> He's studying languages. I'm like, I'm just guessing. Um, no. I own ages. That's because I own is trying to get us the idea that it's not just the cosmos, the world, the earth that was created through him, but time, space, energy, matter, the universe. Everything was created through Jesus. Bishop Westcott tried to define this word and what it means here. He says, it's the sum of the periods of time, including all that is manifested in and through them, the sum of everything that exists in them. God made everything through Jesus. He spoke through Jesus. We're told in John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 3, that all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. If Jesus weren't around, well, nothing would be made because nothing was made. That was, he had to be, ma- be making it. He did make it. And one of the greatest proofs that Jesus is God when he was here on this earth was his ability to create. He created. You know, you think about him turning the water into wine. Listen, yes, he started with water, but he didn't need that fermentation process. He just said, wine, and it was wine. When he duplicated the bread and the fishes, you might say, well, yeah, but, you know, we could take some dough and make some more bread. Yeah, but can you take a fish and make another fish? He made it. And he created life where there had been death. Think of Lazarus rising from the dead. No, Jesus is creator, and he proved it when he walked this earth. We looked at another verse during the Christmas uh, sermon because actually it was the verse I was looking at, Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So there's that word again. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. And get this, visible and invisible. That's right. He created even the visible, invisible things, which are those laws that we always hear about, the laws of nature. He created those things. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities, angelic realms or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Do you see that for him? So he inherits absolutely everything, not just the earth. Everything that exists, exists for Christ, the entire universe, because Christ created it. 
Now, we recently looked at some pictures of some planets in our solar system. You remember putting those pictures up there just to get the sheer magnitude of, of the creation. But I want you to consider some of the facts about the vastness of our universe. This is just meant to understand how huge our God is. I just want to give you this idea. Our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a little swirl in a pastry roll. And it is over 100,000 light years across, okay, about 600 trillion miles. I can't even fathom that number. Now, we know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes. How you even estimate that, I don't know. There's just too many to count. And each galaxy itself is containing some 100,000 million stars. So it's commonly held that the average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies, which each have 600 trillion million miles across, and they contain 100,000 million stars, is a million light years across. I can't even fathom that. Let me put it into something we can maybe understand. The solar system, okay? The solar system. Now, if we could travel at the speed of light, let's just go on a little travel today. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. That's fast, okay? Now, if you wanted to go to the moon, the moon is 211,463 miles away. We could go to the moon in a second and a half. That's great. Would you like to go to the moon with me? Boom. Okay, we've been there because that was a second and a half. All right. Now we're going to go to Venus. Venus, you'll be there in two minutes and 18 seconds. Mercury, four and a half minutes. Let's keep going because I always liked Saturn. We go to Saturn, it'll take an hour and 11 minutes. How about all the way out to Pluto, which is 2.7 billion miles away? Speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, four hours. Four hours to go to 2.7 billion miles away. Now, you've gone to Pluto. You're still just only at the edge of our solar system. Now, you remember I put up a picture of this star called Betelgeuse. It's not, it doesn't spell like juice, but it's G-E-U-S-E. And it was huge compared to our solar system planets, but... It was dwarfed by another one called Antares, right? But just looking at Betelgeuse is 880 quadrillion miles away. That is 880 with 15 zeros written after it. If you were traveling at the speed of light, that would take you over 150 years to reach it, to see that planet. Now, that's not even the farthest away that we, we know of. Some estimates say that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light years away. 8 billion. Listen, these things are meant to help us understand that that didn't happen by accident. You, you cannot create a universe that big by a boom, an explosion. Everything sort of just spun off and, and, and then, and no, no, God created that. Christ created that. It is huge to make us realize that his power is immense. Don't limit it. Jesus made it all and it all belongs to him. Romans eleven thirty six. for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, not only is he the inheritor, not only is he the creator, but he's also the radiator. Now, no, not that white thing on the wall that produces heat. But look at verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory. Ah, now you can see where we're going with. Brightness means to send forth light, apogasma, not to reflect it. Not a reflecting. He doesn't reflect the light. He sends forth the light. You know, the moon reflects light, but the sun radiates light. That's the idea here. The brightness of his glory. As the brilliance of light is to the sun, so is Christ the brightness of God's glory. That is the idea. Do you remember John chapter 1? 
verse 14. He's talking about Christ in the flesh. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. What was the glory like? Well, he tries to tell us it was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. No glory could we see that belonging to a man. That was the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is the brightness of the Father. The light is the essence of the Son, while Christ reveals uh, the very essence of God to man. That's what we need, because man is lost in darkness. Remember, we're confined in this box of time and space. We can't get out of it. Well, bad news, that box is also dark. Because we're, we're dead to sin, we're dead in our sins and trespasses, um, and we're, we're, we're just trapped in this, this, this place. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says that the minds, uh, the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now look at all the light imagery there. Your, your minds have been blinded by the God of this age, he's saying. Why? So that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, won't shine on you. Because if you get a taste of that, you're going to realize you've been in darkness. The thing is, people don't know they're in darkness. They're in darkness, but they don't know it. But if you get a glimpse of the light, you want the light. And that's why the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Man is kept in darkness. They're dead in trespasses and sins without hope in this world. But God spoke. And then he sent forth his light into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me shall not walk in darkness. He'll have the light of life. That's what he was talking about. I'm here to give the light to men who were in darkness. And so those who receive him, those who receive Christ, can say this, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just look at that. God commanded light to shine out of darkness. He's shown it in our hearts. Why? So we would have the knowledge of the glory of God. You don't get that knowledge unless the light has shown. We need Christ. Remember, I ended last week's sermon by saying, do you want to know God? Know Christ. You have to know him. Jesus not only radiates God's very essence to man. Hold on to your hats. He is the express image of his person. Do you see that? That's the next point. He is the representer. Number four, he is the representer. Verse four says the express image of his person. Express image, that word is is very close to our word character. It's an impression made by a die or a stamp on on a seal, and that design on the die is reproduced on the wax seal. It looks exactly like the real thing. He is the exact reproduction of, we're told, his person. That word person, hypostasis, that is his nature. He's the reproduction of that. So not only does Jesus radiate God's glory, he represents him. Remember Colossians 1? He's the image of the invisible God. Image in that verse is icon, where we get our word icon. It's a precise copy. It's a precise duplicate. What we're told here is that he is the exact reproduction of God. Now, let me show you, this is going to get a little mind-boggling, how John tries to describe this in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, very familiar verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, let's just look at the first part. Let's look at these two ones that I underlined. 
the word, okay, so he was, was the word and the word was God. You see those? Was the word, word was God. So from that verse, we're learning one part. The word was God. Jesus, in that part, that's the radiator. He is the, the part of the source, one with the Father, okay? Because the word is God. Now, we're throwing a curveball by John because we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at something we can't quite fathom. Look at John 1, 1, as he also tries to fit Jesus as the representer in here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Do you see that? So not only was the word God, but that word is also with God. So I can the word be God, but also be with God. God, because Jesus is the, um, the radiator, he's one with the Father, part of the source, but he also is distinct, yeah. separate. Did I bake your noodle yet? All right, that is, that is the mystery of the Trinity, right? That our God exists three in one, amazing. And it's right there in one verse. Jesus is both God and yet with God. He's the Son, distinct from the Father, yet the Son is God and so is the Father. Both make up the one God. And that's why when Philip said to Jesus, can you show us the Father? He, he said, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the radiator and he is the representer. Oh, but wait, there's more. <laughs> Look at verse three again. He's also sustainer and upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things by the word of his power. Not only did Jesus make all things, and someday he will inherit all things, but he, but he holds it all together. Every molecule, every atom in the universe, Jesus holds together. He didn't, you know, he didn't create the universe and then sort of set it off spinning and then just sit back to watch it all sort of fall apart, you know. He continuously holds it together. That word upholding, Pharaoh, is a present tense. It means he's currently continuously upholding everything in the universe is sustained by Jesus right now. If Jesus wanted to just say, no more gravity, we'd be in a world of hurt, yeah. right? If Jesus just wanted to say, let's just change the tilt of the earth, we'd be in a world of hurt. If we were just a little bit closer to the sun, a little bit further away from the sun, just everything is so exact and precise. And we've always wondered, well, how does that all stay together? Because he is upholding all things by the word of his power. And word here is not logos. That word logos is usually used to uh, indicate revelation. This word uh, here is rhema. It's the spoken word. It's that word. The universe was spoken into existence through Christ, and it is sustained through the spoken word of Christ. Or Colossians 1.17, it says, He is before all things, and in him all things consist. All things consist in him. Those laws of nature... Christ sustains those laws. So think about this. Just think about the people getting this letter at this time and about when this was written. Jesus had just died the death of a criminal on a cross about 30 years prior to this letter being written, convincing Jews to follow Christ, not as a man, but as God, the Messiah, but God. And the author has lifted up Jesus at the beginning as, as God radiating his glory as representing his nature perfectly. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the inheritor of the cosmos. And all those things, those are just too magnificent to, to imagine. Can you go any higher than this? Can he be any greater than this? Yes, he can. 
because now he goes to the most important part. He is our purifier, our purifier. When he had by himself purged our sins, purged our sins. Katharismos, we're told, is that word. Katharismos means cleansed or purified, which is why I use the purified word. He's our purifier. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So that tells me is that we have a sin problem. Mankind has a sin problem. We need to be purified of this sin. And many times the common question is, well, what's that have to do with Jesus and dying on the cross? Why? Here's why. Hebrews 9.22. And according to the law, okay, according to the law, the law of God, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. That starts there. Blood is required, a blood debt, a blood payment. And the reason is because the wages of sin is death. To pay, um, to, to be purified requires that blood be shed. Our penalty for our sin is death. It's blood. It's only blood that purifies. Now, when you go with the Old Testament, now that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? That's why we had all those Old Testament sacrifices. That's why that whole economy was installed, because it temporarily purified man until a perfect sacrifice could be made. And that's why this author began by lifting Jesus to the heavens first. Okay, he's being very, very precise here, showing that Jesus is God because he's got to be a better sacrifice than all those Jews had experienced with all the old economy with the priests and the sacrifice in the temple and all that. Let me show you it and turn to Hebrews 7. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7 real quick. I just want you to see it. Obviously, we'll get there one day, but... Um, I just want to take you there to, to, to peek at this. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Look at how the author describes Jesus as the new high priest. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, which is innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and it has become higher than the heavens. Do you see that? See, you've got to understand is that priests have been offering sins, uh, sacrifices for sins and even for their own sins because they're the opposite of this. They're sinners, right? They're part of the sin. But, but here, this high priest is separate from all of that. He is holy. He is set apart. He is undefiled. He is harmless. And he is higher than the heavens. Verse 27 then goes on, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus only had to make the sacrifice one time. Only a sacrifice that was higher than the heavens would be suitable to cover the sins of all mankind for all time. Sacrifices of the Old Testament, see, those were temporary. And we needed not temporary redemption, We needed eternal redemption. That's why Jesus came. In fact, just one more verse. Just turn to Hebrews 9. Look at verse 12. Hebrews 9, verse 12. It says that not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. You see, the blood of 
uh, goats and, and, and calves and all that wasn't eternal. They had to keep sacrificing and keep sacrificing. They had to do it over and over and over again. But when Jesus came as the ultimate purifier, he provided the ultimate sacrifice. Aren't you thankful for that? I, I've been a, a, the pastor for some years now, and I'm so thankful no one's ever brought me a goat. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> But that's what they had to do, you know, bring me a thing and let me sacrifice it and your, you know, your sins are temporarily covered for now. But we live in the new covenant. God has established a new economy because Christ came to obtain eternal redemption so that you can have forgiveness once for all. It's blood that purifies. Aren't you thankful it's not your blood? It's Christ's blood. It's his blood. That saves us. First John 1 John 1.7 tells us that. His blood cleanses us from all sin. Well, when you think about this, Jesus' death, it's on a cross. And, and for Jews hearing this, the cross was a stumbling block to Jews particularly. But you know what? The cross is still a stumbling block to people today. They still stumble at this whole idea of, of that someone would have to die uh, for their sins because generally we just think we're, we're, we're pretty good people. We, we just don't look at how sinful we really are, but we also don't look at really how holy God is. The cross was the stumbling block, but it also was our way out of the box. See, people think they, they have their own way to God. They think they, they found the right tool, and they can kind of come to the edge of the box and dig their way through, and they found God. That's every man-made way to God is false. You can't. You're trapped in this, this box. But when God came, he spoke and then he came. And when he came, he, he died. And when he died, he provided the only way out of the box. That's why Jesus said, I am the way. <laughs> I am the truth. I am the life. You, you can't find it through anything else. If anyone tells you they found the way, they're, they're wrong. I'm not even telling you that I found the way. I'm telling you I found Christ. Christ is the way. <laughs> He is the way. I, I, I don't do anything to get out. I don't do anything to find my way. I don't do anything to earn my salvation. Jesus paid the price. It's because of his blood that I can go and be with him for eternity. Why? I've been purified by his blood. And the simple thing is that we just simply have to receive that. <laughs> That's what's amazing. You know, I'm sure if I sat down and, and I drew up some kind of contract that would actually make some people feel better, right? This is what you get with salvation. Now, if you sign right here on the dotted line, I'll show you. And you have all these little points here. But until you sign, nothing. No. All I have to do is receive it. And it's done. My, 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 my penalty has been paid. I've been purified. And then you get, you, you get to see it in your life. You get to see it in your life. The greatest testimony to the truth of these things is the life of believers, the testimony of those who have been purified. Because I was a wretched sinner, and Christ turned my life around. I was living for Kevin. I was living for me. Why would I come here to Wales to be with you lot? <laughs> but that would have been my attitude, right? But instead, I, God, God has changed my life. He's given me a whole different desire to live for him, to please him. And, and so it's an easy thing to come and serve people and love them because the love of Christ is in our hearts. So the greatest testimony to the truth of these things is really the testimony of lives changed. But listen, that's not even all. That's only six facets. We've got one more to cover, and we'll do this rather briefly, that 
We talked about Jesus coming and being the purifier. Go back to our passage, which means he died on the cross. Now notice what it says after that. He died, purged our uh, sins, and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the final facet here. He's our ruler. He's our ruler. How did he sit down after he died? Well, because he rose, all right? He rose from the dead. He conquered death. And when he rose, he sat down. Now, I want to end here with giving you three reasons why this is so important. Three reasons Jesus sat down at the right hand. Reason number one, he sat down to rest. Now, he wasn't tired. <laughs> Nothing tires our creator. But he, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 12, I'll just put it up here, tells us this. Every priest stands. Notice that. Every priest stands, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, this is why this is so important. This is why this statement is so astounding. Jesus, being the perfect high priest, after accomplishing the sacrifice of of purging our sins, sat down. That's in great, great contrast to the Old Testament. You know why? Because priests did not sit down. There were no seats in the tabernacle. There were no seats in the temple because their work was never finished. That's why that verse says they stood ministering daily. That's a long job. They sacrificed over and over and over again, and they weren't allowed to sit because that was meant to signify that it was a work that could never be finished until one could come and finish it and then sit down. And Jesus sat. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? Because the work was finished. I think he said something like that from the cross. It is finished. And then he rose and he sat. Second, second reason he sat down to intercede for us. Romans eight thirty four says, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus' sacrificial work is done, but his intercessory work isn't. He sits at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for you and me. Do you ever picture that happening? We do make a big deal, and should, rightly should, that we get to come into the throne room of grace, but do you ever imagine that that throne room of grace, Jesus praying for you, interceding for you? Because doesn't he know your needs more than you do? Doesn't the Spirit know what we need more than we do? Sometimes we don't even need to know what we need to pray for, what what we need. Sometimes as Christians, we're just blind to it. (laughs) And Christ is, oh, bless his heart, I'm going to pray for this, (laughs) right? That poor boy, he just keeps going over there, that way, that way. And he's praying for us. He's interceding for us. His work isn't even done. Sacrificially, yes, purified, purged, forgiven, redeemed. But do you need prayer? You bet. Do I? You bet. And Jesus, his intercessory work, oh boy, that's carrying on. But there's a third reason. He sat down to signify his authority. 1 Peter 3.22, he's gone into heaven and as at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. He is in a place of honor. He is in a place of authority today. Everything is made subject to him. And you might go, well, 
not everything, because certainly there's people who, who aren't subject to him. No, everyone is subject to him. Philippians 2, 9-11 tells us this, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is in a place of honor and authority. Does it matter if people have physically failed to bow the knee today? It will happen one day because he is in the place of authority. How's your view of Jesus now? Has it grown a little bit bigger? If you think about all the Old Testament offices that existed of of prophet and priest and king, and you think about the things we've just seen, they're all fulfilled in Christ. All of them are here. As prophet, he was the final spokesman for God. God has spoken to us by his son in these last days. He fulfilled that prophetic role. As priest, atoning and interceding for us. He's, he's accomplished the atoning, and he continues to intercede for us as the Old Testament priests did. And as king, well, controlling, sustaining, seated on his throne, that's Jesus. Do you know him? That's Jesus. Hopefully, he'll grow bigger in your minds and hearts. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you, Lord, how great and magnificent and high Jesus has been lifted up for us today by this wonderful letter. Lord, I just pray for people today that maybe have failed to understand what is all the big deal about this Jesus that Christians love. I hope they've been able to see that just a little bit more today. Jesus is more than a man. He's more than even just a good teacher, more than a prophet. He's creator. He's ruler. He sustains the very atoms that make up my body. And if he chose to just let those dissipate, I would cease to exist. That's the God we love. That's the God we serve. And we thank you so much, Holy Spirit, for guiding us into this truth today. And I pray that our hearts would really um, uh, uh, be able to absorb these truths, Lord, that you will be bigger in our hearts and minds and that you would continue to grow bigger as we continue on this wonderful journey we call sanctification. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.